Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. About a week and a half ago, I had a layover at Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport. It was crowded with people, so I made my way down the terminal wing where I was until I found an area that didn't have so many people. There was an area of seats there with hardly anyone sitting there, so I went over, sat down, got my computer booted up, and started working on a sermon. Over the next... 20 minutes or so, slowly people began to migrate in that direction, and slowly the seats began to fill up. There was a couple that came down my aisle and sat in two seats across from me, facing my direction, but several seats down. I didn't pay much attention to them at first. I was busy working on my laptop. And then I sensed, just out of my hearing, a shift in the intensity of the conversation. It became more intense, and then even more intense. And so I furrowed my brow and focused on the computer writing, but I was listening to see what was going on over there. (laughs) They were not happy with each other. It seems like she had billed something to their credit card, which he had just discovered by looking at his phone. She, according to him, was supposed to have cleared that with him before billing it. Furthermore, it was for airline tickets that he had understood were supposed to be about $800, and the charge was for $1,600. It was getting more intense and more interesting. I tried to stay focused on my computer, but I could hear when suddenly he just stood up and stalked away. And she said to him, are you going to the gate? Are you coming back? No answer. He just kept going. And I thought, ooh, this is not good. He finally returned about the time my flight was called and I got up to leave. I have to confess, I said a prayer for that couple, said a prayer for that wife, said a prayer that they would find a way to work through the conflict. But it reminded me of something I had read two or three weeks before that. I went online and found it. An attorney and writer named Joshua Rogers wrote an online piece back in July, July 21 to be exact. I want to read you the opening part of what he wrote. In the first year of marriage, my wife and I got into a disagreement while visiting a family member's home. We went to the guest room to hash it out privately, but we had no idea how badly we were about to embarrass ourselves. While in the guest room, our tempers flared. Unfortunately, I became particularly disrespectful until suddenly my wife's face dropped and she said, Oh my goodness, the baby monitor is right next to you. (laughs) This was significant because the baby's monitor speaker was sitting in the living room and our hosts were home. I was unfazed. Don't worry, I said I turned it off right before I came in here. 
Without missing a beat, I continued rehashing my grievance until we got tired of arguing and my, my wife left the room. Then she immediately returned and with icy composure said, I just went to the living room. You didn't turn the monitor to the off position. You turned it to voice activation. <laughs> we both felt like we were going to die, hoping that by some chance nobody had heard our nasty argument. In fact, we learned they had. We were humiliated. Can you imagine sharing your conflict with the whole family? Now, I tell you those two instances for a couple of reasons. The first is they underline the reality, the truth of human existence, that if we're going to be in relationship of any kind, we will have conflict. Whether you're talking about marriage, family, roommates in the dorm, or church, there will be conflict. The second reason is one that has to do with that last one, with church. With church, somehow we come with a different set of expectations. We come with a set of expectations that says we're the body of Christ. We can't differ here. We shouldn't have conflict. And the reason is simple. The baby monitor is on and the world is listening. That's underlined by what some say about conflict in the church. Take, for example, a Puritan preacher decked centuries actually ago, Thomas Manton, who said, conflict in the church breeds atheists in the world. In other words, if we have conflict, if we differ and we disagree, then out there that is taken as a witness, a testimony against us. I can understand. I've seen and known of some very difficult conflict in churches over the years. But we have to ask a question about that. Because the truth is, in any human relationship that is real, differences will emerge and conflict will be a reality. In the Seventh-day Adventist church, we're at an interesting juncture at this point in time. Trying to sort through some issues that are problematic. Trying to come to conclusions that will unify us more than divide us. Trying to find a way to move together as a unified body of Christ. Important times. And the baby monitor's on. And the world is listening. So what do we do? If conflict is a reality... Is there a way to work through change and lead into the future in a way that reflects biblical realities? Well, some of us have thought over the years, I've concluded, that in the early church there wasn't conflict. That in the early church everybody got along together. A lot of that comes from an early phrase in the book of Acts at the beginning of the day of Pentecost experience where it says all the believers were together and were in one accord, and the Spirit fell. And so we say, well, we have to be in one accord. That was the picture of the early church. But if you've spent any time at all reading the book of Acts, you know that while that is true, that is only a partial picture. 
Read chapter 6 of Acts, and you will see the Grecian widows and those who cared about them being very exercised, very upset, and saying, look, our widows are being overlooked in the handing out of help. We need to receive the help as well, not just the Hebrew widows. They were upset about it, upset enough that the church leaders met and formed a new position in the church, something called deacons. We have deacons today because some widows were being overlooked and the church got into a conflict. Or continue reading in the book of Acts and you'll come to the story of Paul and Barnabas. Two brothers in the faith, two flaming firebrands for God committed to the spread of the message of the gospel of Jesus. They also had a heart for mentoring. So on one of their missionary journeys, they invited John Mark, a relative of Barnabas, to come along with them. But things got tough, and when the going got tough, John Mark got going. He went back home. He quit halfway through. So the next time they were to travel together, as they're making plans, Barnabas says, okay, well, let me check with John Mark, make sure he's ready to go. And Paul says, with who? He says, with John Mark. Paul says, he's not going with us. Barnabas says, absolutely. Everybody deserves a second chance. And Paul says, absolutely not. And the contention became so divisive that they finally split apart, chose different partners, and went on their own missionary journey. What's curious about that is the book of Acts describes that moment by saying when they left and the believers commended both of them to the grace of God. So this conflict that had ruptured that relationship is now blessed by the other believers as they go to spread the gospel. If you read the book of Acts, you discover they were no strangers to conflict. There was one overarching conflict, however, in the book. It really became the tip of the spear in Paul's ministry. And that had to do with the question, do Gentile believers coming into the church have to become Jewish in order to be Christian? In other words, do they have to obey the law of Moses? Do they have to be, the men, circumcised? That became a matter of intense conflict. I want to look at that and just ask, was there something about the way they managed their conflict, something about how they worked this issue through that might inform us today and how we face such realities? So we go to Acts the 15th chapter, Acts chapter 15, because here in Acts 15, it becomes a clear, stark focus. It happens because some people, individuals, we assume they were men because they were commonly the teachers, came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. They got to Antioch, which is a very cosmopolitan city where the cause of Christ was beginning to thrive. Because of the cosmopolitan nature of where they worked, more and more Gentiles were coming into the faith. These emissaries from a certain party in Jerusalem came down to Antioch and said, you can't do that. You cannot just allow them in to the faith in that way. They have to obey the law of Moses. Paul and Barnabas, however, take a very different tack on that. 
And so the battle lines are drawn. The stage is set. The baby monitor is on. And now the question, how did they manage it? What did they do? Well, interestingly enough, the first thing they did was they argued. They argued. Each side presenting its case. They argued with each other. Acts 15, starting with verse 1. Certain individuals came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So they came down and they said, here's where we stand. This is the reality of the situation as we see it. You cannot do what you're doing. Paul and Barnabas, however, respond to that with vim and vigor. They argue. Notice again that first part of verse 2. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Sharp dispute and debate. They argued. On the one hand, you had those who had come from Jerusalem who were saying, look, we have a whole history behind us. Many of the scrolls, the writings, the prophets before us. The law of Moses supporting us. This is something that was given by God. We were called to be a unique, a distinct people. We must obey this. And if we just allow anyone to come in this way, it will threaten our very identity. They had a lot of weight behind their position. But Paul and Barnabas apparently drawing on the message and mission of Jesus took a different tack. They said, wait a minute. That is not the approach we should have. Look at the life and ministry of Jesus, they may have said. Look at what he did. He consistently broke down boundaries, destroyed barriers, invited the previously disenfranchised and excluded into the kingdom of God because he didn't come to build a club. He came to build an open kingdom. Think about what he did scandalously sitting, talking openly with a, not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman, healing the Canaanite woman's daughter, healing the centurion's son, always pushing a little bit further in the direction of openness to the kingdom he announced. And the two sides apparently, as they say, went after it. Because Scripture is at pains to say this wasn't just a disagreement. It was sharp dispute and debate. So how did they handle it when the difference came? First thing they did was they argued. They each presented their own position. But they didn't just argue. The second thing they did, Paul and Barnabas did, second thing they did was they told stories. They told stories. Back to Acts 15. We'll start halfway through verse 2. 
So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider the question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know how that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. As we watch them argue, we may want to ask the question, why are you arguing? I think if we did ask them that, the answer that would come back is we are because certain things matter. Certain realities count. There are certain realities to which, if we ignore them, will affect our future. So they argued, and because of that, the believers there in Antioch said, then go up to Jerusalem, get some counsel from the church leaders, from the apostles and the other leaders, and so off they go. Now notice what they do along the way. Along the way, they tell stories. They tell stories about how God is working among the Gentiles through their ministry. They tell stories through Phoenicia as they journey, telling them apparently God is working with people just like you. People who were viewed as outsiders now can be brought inside. They journey through Samaria, that place where James and John had once upon a time at the rebuff of hospitality had said, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? And now Paul and Barnabas are going through there and are saying, God is converting the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit is falling without discrimination. And they tell the stories. And then they arrive at Jerusalem. The meeting is convened. And once again, they tell stories. Peter stands up. And Peter says, let me tell you what God is doing through my ministry, what I see happening among the Gentiles. And it is out of his speech that comes what may be one of the more poignant questions of Scripture. Peter says, I preach to them. And then the Holy Spirit falls on them because they accept Jesus. 
The Holy Spirit falls on them just as the Holy Spirit fell on us back in the beginning. He's referring to Pentecost when the Spirit fell. Falls on them just as the Spirit fell on us. And then comes the question, so what would you have me to do? What would you have me to do? They accept Jesus. The Holy Spirit falls. What do you want me to do? Rush in and tell God, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. They've got to do some other things first. They can't become full members strictly on the grace of Jesus. They first, is that what you want me to do? The Spirit is moving among them. It's a very poignant question. It does cause me to wonder. It causes me to wonder what Peter is thinking about. Causes me to wonder if he's remembering something Jesus said that last night before his crucifixion. It comes in that rich, fertile passage when Jesus spends the time with his disciples, and John tells it over several chapters in the latter part of his gospel. Some of Jesus' most touching and profound teaching comes out of that time. Well, Jesus, no doubt looking at his disciples, wants to prepare them for what's up ahead. He wants to unpack maybe the direction of his kingdom, maybe the fact that others will come into the kingdom. He wants to tell them what is going to happen as a trajectory to the ministry he has had. It's almost as though he may want to say, you know, you resisted me when I reached out to the Gentiles, but that's where the kingdom is going. But it must have been the case that he looked around at those disciples and realized they can't hear this right now. They can't take it right now. He realized they were children of their world just as much as we are children of ours. So listen to what Jesus says in John 16. This is Jesus being quoted by John. John 16, verse 12. Here's what he says. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he... The Spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all truth. Think about that. Jesus saying to his disciples, there's more to the story. I'd like to tell you, you can't take it right now. You're at a place where you can't hear it right now. But just wait. When the Spirit comes, the Spirit will guide you into all truth. Could Peter have been thinking of that? As he stands there before the Jerusalem council and says to them, Friends, I preach. They receive Jesus and the Spirit falls. What would you have me do? Reject them? So what did they do? They argued. They told stories, and they studied Scripture. 
They studied Scripture. Back to Acts 15. As Peter's words are dying on his lips, as the, as the community of believers who have gathered around are r- arriving at a point when a decision needs to be made. Then James stands up. Acts 15, verse 13. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, this is James still speaking, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. James weighs in. James is the one who articulates the final decision and the final direction. So our question is, who is James? What gives him that much weight in the decision being made? I want to read to you two quotations from two New Testament scholars who I thought articulated very well who James was and why his message mattered so much. Remember, They studied Scripture, and that's what James's words are reflecting. So the first New Testament scholar, William Barclay, says this. The matter of the reception of the Gentiles hung in the balance. Then James spoke. He was the leader of the Jerusalem church. His leadership was not a formal office. It was a moral leadership conceded to him because he was an outstanding individual. He was the brother of Jesus. He had, a, he had had a special resurrection appearance all to himself. He was a pillar of the church. His knees were said to be as hard as a camel's because he knelt in prayer so often and so long. He was a good man, such a good man that he was called James the Just. Further, and this was all important, he himself was a rigorous observer of the law. If such a man should come down on the side of the Gentiles, then all was well. And he did, declaring that the Gentiles should be allowed into the church without anything further standing in their way. Within the church, then, the principle was established that Jews and Gentiles were one. So here is James, the de facto leader, high moral standing, rigorous observer of the law, strong conservative heart and mind, respected by all, who after hearing the two sides, after hearing the stories, stands up and says, Do you know what Scripture says about this? And he quotes Scripture. He quotes from the writings of the prophets. He takes from those scrolls that reflect such ancient thinking. 
This was the very thing that his, the opponents of Paul and Barnabas were quoting from, saying, no, 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 we have to stay faithful to all that was written back there. And James says, yes, we do. Let me tell you what was written. Second quote from N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, esteemed scholar. Wright says, James's judgment, summing up the debate and its results, is extremely important. He begins by picking up what Peter has said, referring to Peter as Simeon, which may be Luke's way of indicating that the debate was conducted in Aramaic. So he picks up what Peter has said and emphasizing that what counts is the grace of God. But then, crucially, he cites a biblical passage which sums up so much of the theology of both Acts and of Paul. James goes for the center of the passage and draws the conclusion that the Gentiles are indeed welcome as they are on the basis of God's grace and with faith in Jesus as their only badge of membership. So James speaks. He says, study Scripture. Things that were said so long ago lead us in this trajectory are reflected in the prophets. So you've both made passionate arguments. You've told stories, Paul and Barnabas, of what God is doing in your ministry to the Gentiles. James says, I will add to that this. Our ancient text says this day would come. And James was right, in fact, going as far back as Abraham. Abraham was told, through your seed, all the descendants and the nations of the earth will be blessed. So they argued. They told stories. They studied Scripture. And they did one more thing. One more thing. They followed the Holy Spirit. They followed the Holy Spirit. That is seen not only interwoven through the entire account here in Acts 15, but if you read the entire book of Acts, that's the continual subtext and sometimes is very open. This constant commitment to follow the Holy Spirit, to follow where the Spirit is leading. They were attuned to that. These people who had been arguing before, who had listened to the argument, wanted to follow what the Spirit of God was doing. I want to reread one text to you. Back to Acts 15. I want to reread verse 12 because it gives a sense of where the gathered group was as they heard what happened. Acts 15, 12 says this. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. They became silent. I wonder what they were thinking. As silence settled down upon the gathered body, as they listened to what God was doing through Paul and Barnabas, where the Holy Spirit was leading, were they thinking, wow, we didn't realize it would go this way. This is new and fresh 
to us. This expands our world. It expands the kingdom. But God is at work. And when God is at work, arguments cease. They followed the Holy Spirit. They became silent. It's hard to do that. It's difficult to become silent when recognizing God is at work. If we agree where God is moving, we celebrate understandably, but sometimes we do a victory dance in the face of others who are hurt by it. If God is moving in a direction not to our liking, we can demean and diminish and disrespect others. I know that. Because there have been times when I have gone home or gone back to my room after a meeting and have had to pray and say, God, I'm sorry I said what I said. I need to learn to be silent at the right times. I sadly know that I'm not alone in that. When I was on the Theology of Ordination Study Committee, TOSC, some years ago, we were near the end of our work, and on one occasion, we were shown a video, a video of a number of women in ministry Women in ministry who were talking about the ways in which they had sensed the call of God on their lives, ways in which the Spirit of God was using them in their ministry, using them to reach others, using them to make a difference for the kingdom of God in the world. When the meeting was over, I was walking down the hallway headed back to my room, and I happened to just fall in behind two other members of the committee just ahead of me. They were members of the committee who saw the issue quite differently than I did. And I just happened to catch a part of their conversation. One said to the other, well, they bring those out to try to influence our emotions. The other said, yeah, I know, they're just playing on our heartstrings. And their door closed. It would be easy for me to sit in judgment of that, except I know my own heart and experience. And I recognize that there must come a time when we do fall silent at the work that God is doing, the way the Spirit is moving. We follow the Spirit's direction to enlarge the kingdom of God, to reach out, to make a difference. You may say to me, but the differences between what they wrestled with then and what we wrestle with now are clear. And you would be right. They were wrestling with issues dealing with the law of Moses and the influx of Gentiles. We are wrestling with issues about women's ordination and the authority of the church. But underneath, maybe several things bind those together. The fact that both decisions have much to do with what will happen in the future. The fact that both have to do with whether or not we can allow God to call whom He calls and invite whom He invites. They both have to do with how we ultimately treat each other.
So what did they do? They argued. They told stories. They studied Scripture. And they followed the leading of the Holy Spirit. And they emerged a new church, an invigorated church, a church that didn't resemble that which went before, but that was engaging with its world in spirit-led ways. I hope we can do the same. I hope we can respond to Scripture and Spirit in faithfulness. Because the truth is, the baby monitor is on, and the world is listening.